Well, good morning. morning. Welcome to Fellowship Church. It's good to see your faces. Um, In whatever way you're joining with us here in the sanctuary to imagine your faces on the other side of the screen for those of you who are joining us online and those in the atrium, we're glad to be together. Um, This morning, our call to worship comes from Psalm chapter 148. I invite you to hear these words, and as you hear them, to imagine yourself in the midst of all creation, joining in God's praise. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his host. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He fixed their bounds, which cannot be passed. Praise the Lord from the earth, you sea monsters and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and frost, stormy wind fulfilling his command, mountains and hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and women alike, old and young together, Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people, praise for all his faithful, for the people of Israel who are close to him. Praise the Lord. Would you stand and let's join our voices with all of creation.
Good morning. I'm going to invite you all to pray with me in a responsive prayer. And in this prayer, we uh, mix together the Lord's Prayer and a number of psalms. So they will be labeled as all. I believe the all words are in yellow. And then I will read the one, which are the words in white. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, you indeed are our Father adopting us into an eternal family as the earthly father has compassion on his children, so you show compassion on those who fear you. You know how we are made and remember us in our weakness. Hallowed be your name. You alone are holy. There is none like you. Your glory is above the heavens, yet you stoop down to lift up the needy. We exalt and worship you, for you are holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ, your kingdom has already come, even though rulers of this earth gather together against you, thinking they can thwart your purpose. They cannot, for you have installed Christ, your anointed one, the everlasting, all-powerful king over all creation. Give us this day our daily bread. All creatures look to you for their food at the proper time. When you provide, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. Lord, help us be good stewards of the gifts of food you have given us so that all may have their daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered, and who know the joy of forgiveness. As we have been forgiven, help us to become like Christ, forgiving those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial, and deliver us from evil. In mercy, O Lord, answer the prayers of all who are in deep distress. Hear their cries, especially when they are tormented by those who deny you and act as if you, you do not care. At the same time, save us from sinning in our anger. Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. Thanks for leading us in prayer. Friends, you may remember that last Sunday was a beautiful, sunny day, and we had an opportunity to do a fellowship first, which was some front porch baptisms. We did these just out there on that beautiful day. I'm going to share with you some of the photos and memories of that, but first I want to remind you that we do this because Jesus said so. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, our teacher and our friend, after he had come into the world, died on a cross and rose from the grave, he gathered his disciples and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey 
everything that I have commanded you. And surely, says Jesus, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And since Jesus said that, Christian churches almost everywhere have recognized baptism as a sacrament, a kind of holy mystery, a visible word, an embodiment of grace, a sacred coming together of normal visible things like water and sacred spiritual things like covenantal belonging. And in baptism, we use the symbol of water because water cleanses, water purifies, water refreshes, and water sustains. Baptism is that kind of symbol for us whereby we celebrate God's promises to each and every one of us, promises to forgive our sins and wipe us clean, promises to unite us to Christ Jesus in his death and resurrection, promises to incorporate us into the body of Christ, the church, promises to send his Holy Spirit upon us daily to strengthen and sustain us, and promises also to resurrect us into the life eternal. And we celebrate in baptism that Jesus Christ is for us the living water. So on this day, a week ago, we gathered and we had a few elders with us representing our consistory, wonderfully so. We also had our president of the congregation, Jeff Jansma, there towering over me to represent y'all in a good way. And on that day, we gathered to baptize little Isla Lynn and Hazel May. So first up was Isla Lynn, who is the daughter of Evan and Sarah Cobus, Pastor Nate baptized her and carried her around in a wonderful way. The verse that the family selected to pray over top of her was Genesis chapter 9, which says, Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. And then Pastor Nate turned and baptized little Isla Lynn. And of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It was a glad moment. And then after that, we turned to do little Hazel May. And Hazel May is the daughter of Nate and Jean and their wonderful family is there together. I had the opportunity to baptize her, and she liked me for a little while and then decided she liked mom a lot better and so passed back over to mom, and the family chose this verse to pray over top of Hazel May, Philippians 1, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus to the glory and praise of God. And then we turned and baptized little I baptized Hazel in the May. name of the Father. She was very attentive. And of the Son. To the water. And the Holy Spirit. Welcome to the family. At the end of those, we say together, welcome to the family, because they are brought into this covenant faith community Thanks be to God. I want to invite you now to stand, and we're going to make promises to them. So would you please stand?
I have a question for you. And if you want to respond in the affirmative, the answer is simply, we do with gusto. But the question is this. Fellowship Church, do you promise to love, encourage, and support these families by teaching the gospel of God's love, by being an example of Christian faith and character, and by giving the strong support of God's family in fellowship, prayer, and service? We do. Thanks be to God. Friends, baptism is a great symbol of the peace of God given to us through Jesus Christ, which makes us also possible to share that peace with one another. So the peace of Christ be with you. Would you take a moment to share a sign of that peace with each other? My name is Chris Gibson, uh, and my wife Tammy and our three of our four kids have been members at Fellowship now for a couple of years. And uh, we are here at Saugatuck Dunes today. This is a place that has become very special to me. And for the past 17 or 18 years, it's become kind of my refuge, uh, my sanctuary, or even my safe space. I have absolutely loved the woods ever since I was a young kid. And since we moved here to Holland, I have spent many, many hours and hiked, I don't even wanna know how many miles in these woods. I love to walk and I love to spend time in the woods. So some of that has been good just for me personally uh, and for recreation. Some of it's been with family, with close friends. Some of it's been out of a deep need to connect with God. Uh, and I found that out here in God's creation, I find that so much easier standing by this signpost right now and often when I come out uh, and I'm about halfway to the to the beach um, I'll pass a trail marker like this um, and years ago going through a really really tough time uh, I learned that every time I passed one of these trail markers I needed to pray specifically for a person who was really really tough for me to pray for Jesus asks us to love our enemies and to pray for people who make our lives miserable and that's part of my experience out here uh, and I'm very grateful that the Lord has let me, let me learn better how to do that during my time in the woods. So here we are at the top of the dune. Lake Michigan's maybe 100 yards off to my left, kind of behind this big, ugly concrete structure. Uh, goes by a lot of names, uh, depending on uh, who you are and who you come here with. I've heard it called the Devil's Pyramid. But the reality is, in the midst of such an absolutely gorgeous place, there's this big, ugly structure. I think I hiked here for years before I discovered that this place was even here. And I was walking down on the beach, looking up the dune and I saw 
bright colored paint, this concrete structure, when I climbed up to the top, because of course I'm not gonna walk by and not check that out, um, it looked like a bunch of little Pac-Men uh, with fangs. It really looked quite evil. I had this memory of, of a quote from college days about how every square inch of this creation belongs to God. So no matter who tags this thing with evil looking pictures or, or vulgar or gross sayings uh, or just naughty words, um, this space belongs to God, just like every other space that we will ever occupy in our lives. I'm remembering that there's nowhere that we can go and flee from God's spirit, uh, that he is everywhere all the time, that he knows everything uh, before a word is on our lips, he knows it completely, and that he's also all powerful. So somebody can come and mark up a spot like this and claim it as their own or claim it for evil, but that really doesn't matter because in the grand scheme of things, God is here and this place and every person we will ever see belongs to God. Every Christmas Eve, we have a Christmas Eve hike with a bunch of families and we come here and what we're doing is we're really reclaiming something. This does not belong to the devil. This does not belong to people who want to be bad. Uh, this space, like every other space, uh, belongs to God. You know, if I was going to try to communicate something about this place is that it, for me, is a safe place. Uh, it's a place that I go for personal refreshment, but it's not complete unless it's shared. You know what I mean? Because now somebody else will even hear just a touch of, of this. thoughts and the things that he's learned as he's walked and hiked outside. Um, for many years, Christians have compared the Christian life to a walk or a journey or a pilgrimage. Um, and he does a literal walk, but all of us um, are on a walk as followers of Jesus um, with the Lord. And so in, the, in this next moment, as our bell choir uh, prepares to play for us, uh, Precious Lord, Take My Hand, I want you to hear the lyrics of this song um, and consider your own walk with Christ. When my way grows drear, precious Lord, linger near. When my light is almost gone, hear my cry, hear my call. Hold my hand lest I fall. Take my hand, precious Lord, lead me home.
Kay for leading us in that. Here at Fellowship, our mission is to love God and others as an accepting community centered in Christ and focused on developing faithful followers of Jesus. It's something we say every Sunday, but we hope that it, it goes beyond this hour that we're gathered in worship and is really our mission for everything we do throughout the week. We wanted to let you know about a few of those ways that we're doing that. This Wednesday is the Fall Fest. Um, which we have had many years. I think maybe we had to skip it a couple years ago for COVID or last year. Um, but we will be gathering again um, as a whole community. So you are invited to do that and to have chili. And I think there might be donuts and cider and all sorts of other things. So uh, consider that if you want to mingle with other fellowshipians, get to know others, um, see how people are doing with their, with their week. Um, the other thing that we're doing is in a couple of weeks, uh, we wanted to highlight is All Saints Sunday. It's two weeks from this. Sunday. It's a Sunday when we remember that we are joined with the, in the communion of the saints with those who have gone on before us in the great cloud of witnesses, as Hebrews 11 calls it. Um, and those are really our, our ancestors in the faith. And so we invite you to join in honoring that Sunday by submitting a photo of somebody who has been a mentor to you in your faith. It could be somebody who is blood-related. It could be somebody um, that is not blood-related. But we just invite you to submit a photo. I look in the bulletin to see the email that you should send that to. And a sentence or two just about what that person means to you. And then we will um, incorporate that into our worship on Sunday, November 7th. We'd like the photos by next Sunday, if you could get that to us, and we'll also be putting it up on the wall out in the gallery where the maps are currently. So if you would like to participate in that, we have um, information in the bulletin on both of those things that I've mentioned. We also wanted to let you know something that couldn't make it in the bulletin this week is that Ken Diepenhorst passed away at the end of this past week. Um, funeral services are set for him on Friday, this Friday. Um, they will not be here at Fellowship, but check the newspaper to get time and location, or you can call the church office and get that information this next week. We just want to um, recognize and grieve with their family, with the Deep and Horse family, and um, honor him. Um, at this time, I'd invite our children who are ages three years and fifth, through fifth grade to be dismissed to their Sunday school out in the atrium. You can meet Miss Betsy. And for the rest of us, we're going to use this next song um, to prepare our hearts to hear God's word. It's really a prayer. Um, you may have already noticed in the prayer that we prayed earlier, it was from Psalm 4. Let, your light, let the light of your face shine upon us, O God. So we pray that together. Would you stand and let's sing together. Shine on 
you may be seated. Well, good morning, Fellowship Church, friends and guests. The Lord be with you. Today we continue on in our and series where we are challenging some of the polarizations of our day and dragging into the light some of the false dichotomies of our faith. You know what a false dichotomy is, right? They're all around us all the time. In our social life, we sometimes think that you and I must agree on everything or we can't be friends. In the church, we sometimes think that people are either saints or sinners. In politics, you've heard it said, vote for me or you clearly don't care about important things, right? Even in our own heads, we sometimes think either I'm good at everything or I'm no good at all. These false dichotomies are, at best, reckless oversimplifications and at worst, they are dangerous misrepresentations of reality, aren't they? So, we've been pushing back. And in week one of our gatherings this fall, with Genesis chapter one, we said that God is both big and close, and not one without the other. God is as infinite as the stars, and as intimate as the fragrance of a flower. In week two, with the the story of Abraham binding his son Isaac, we acknowledge together that the faith life that we live is a mixture of obedience and struggle, and they often go hand in hand. Last week, with the call of Samuel, we noticed that God's word to a fallen world is both good news and bad news, depending on your perspective and your allegiances. And this week, we turn to the story of Israel's favorite king, one who helps us to see yet another important biblical and pairing. We pick up the story again with Samuel, who last week was a little boy called by God at night. Now he is an old man. He is Israel's last judge. Now, I'll remind you, God's people, the Israelites, were supposed to have no king because God was their king. But they said to God, uh, thanks, but no thanks. We'd rather be like the other nations. Please give us a king. And so God somewhat reluctantly complies and sends Samuel to anoint their first king. He anoints King Saul the tall, right? He was a head above the rest. But Saul ends up being a grave disappointment, and they are in need of another king. Samuel is sent out by God again. And this is the story of the discovery and the anointing of King David. So I invite you now to hear the story as it's told in the book that we love. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 1 and then 4 through 13, where it says this. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and set out. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. And there he sanctified 
Jesse and his sons and invited them to a sacrifice. When they came, Samuel looked on Eliab, David's oldest brother, and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is now before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord does not see as mortals see. The Lord, they look on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all of your sons here? And Jesse said, There remains the youngest, but he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. He sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Rise and anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today, I want to suggest the story we just read is a story about seeing. It includes details about eyes and about sight. There's three characters in the story, and each one of them sees a little bit differently. And I want to look at them with you one at a time. First comes Samuel, Samuel the seer, who actually sees kind of dimly, or you might even see that, say that Samuel sees as the world sees. Now, to be clear, Samuel is not a bad guy. He's God's servant. He does many great things, but he isn't perfect. And for our purposes today, I want to suggest that Samuel represents a worldly way of seeing things. So take a look at an image I have for you here on the screen. How many of you see disappearing dots? Yes, of course. It's an illusion, however. If you stare at any one dot long enough, you'll see that it's just a white dot. It's not blinking. What seems to be so is actually not so in that image. So take a look. Here's another one. Are those blue lines crooked or straight? They're perfectly straight, actually. Doesn't look like it at all, but they are perfectly straight. It's kind of frustrating, isn't it? The point of these two images is that things are often not the way they first seem, that we ought not to judge too quickly. In the biblical stories, Samuel the seer was sometimes a bit too eager to see as the world sees. In some of the previous stories, we know that this happened. When he was anointing King Saul the tall, he was quick to point out to everyone else that Saul was tall. Look, he's taller than everyone else. And, uh, and then, uh, do you see the man that the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him, says Samuel. And the people say, long live the king. He's impressed by Saul's height. But of course, we know how the rest of the story goes. I already told you, it ends up rather sad. 
But of course, Samuel doesn't really learn too much because now when it's time to look for the next king and he meets David's elder brothers, he is similarly drawn to appearances. So Eliab appears first and he has this stately appearance and physical prowessness. And, and Samuel says, surely the Lord's anointed is here now. But the Lord says to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature. For the Lord does not see what humans see. The Lord looks at the heart. The lesson has been taught. And then we look yet again and finally come across David. And guess what? Samuel still sees outside appearances. And so when we meet David, we get yet another description of his outside appearance. He was ruddy, whatever that means. And he had beautiful eyes. And he was handsome. In each of these cases, Samuel seems to be one who just judges by looks. And we still do this today, don't we, right? There are plenty of stats and patterns that prove it. For men, it has been revealed that the greater the height or the greater appearance we have, the more power and the more money. In fact, I saw one study that said if I were one inch taller and every one inch taller beyond that equals $800 in annual salary. Come on. <laughs> right? <laughs> Similarly, with power, the average height of a man in America now is five foot nine and it's gotten taller. We used to be shorter, right? But if you look at the history of U.S. presidents, you know how far back you have to go to find one who was shorter than five foot nine? You have to go all the way back to the year 1900. William McKinley, five foot seven. The next shortest is Jimmy Carter, in case you're curious. At least I think. Even in the NFL, turning now to looks, in the NFL, quarterbacks who are homely looking make 12% less than their more attractive, similarly talented counterparts. Go figure. For women, studies are out there too. And the studies, there, one study was done showing that in college, women who scored as attractive also got better grades. It's not so for men, interestingly, and it's not so because beauty equals brains, right? In researching these rather ugly and unfair truths, I came across two terms, two new terms. One of them is lookism, and the other is the halo effect. Lookism is like all the other isms, like ageism or sexism or raceism, only now the bias is based on looks. The halo effect takes it one step further where you see this kind of golden ring above attractive folks, and the assumption is then that better looks equals better character. But of course it doesn't. My point in bringing this up is twofold. First of all, notice how our story today begins with Samuel the seer who sees as the world sees, deeply grieving. He pinned his hopes on King Saul the tall and ended up really, really disappointed. The word grieve there is a deep, deep loss kind of grieve. He does it all night and God really kind of needs to kick him out of it almost to get moving and to move on it's a sad place to pin our hopes in those particular ways. The second reason I'm drawing this out for you is to notice together the deep, deep hurt that comes from being left out, from being the overlooked one. 
I have a hunch that each of us has experienced that in some particular arenas of our lives. David was intentionally left behind by the people who knew him best. In fact, some have acknowledged that this story of David just might be one of the oldest versions of the Cinderella story. Now, I know David's a boy, right? And there's no glass slipper or pumpkin carriage. But David is intentionally left behind. And yet he's the one who ends up rising to the top. Not because of what others see, but because of what God sees in him. That comes later. For now, I think it's worth noticing that when it comes to Samuel, the one who sees as the world sees, a classic slogan really does seem to ring true. Don't judge a book by its cover. Don't judge a book by its cover. Now, David sees a little differently. David is the one who is described for us as one with beautiful eyes, or it might also mean one who had an eye for beauty. It might actually mean both. And David is a perfect example of this in the scriptures of one who is like that, kind of two-faced, if you will, a story in which there really is two ways to see the very same thing. And I have a couple images, of course, to demonstrate this for fun. How many of you see here an old woman with her chin kind of tucked down? How many of you see a young woman with looking off over her shoulder? They're both there, right? Or how about this one? On three, you tell me what words you see. One, two, three. I heard evil over here, too. There's good and evil in that photo. They are both present, right? The point here is that sometimes two opposite things are present in the one same person or place. And David, King David, is this kind of conundrum for us. He is not a simple character. In fact, if I were to say to any one of you, hey friend, you are just like King David, is that a compliment or an insult? Right? I mean, some of you might say, yes, I, I'll take that as a compliment. And to do that, you would be leaning into the many great deeds that we know about King David. After all, he was an extraordinary warrior. He defeated Goliath. He was a great leader. He established the city of Jerusalem, which is still one of the world's great, great cities. David had an eye for beauty, right? And first, that eye for beauty brought him to music. He was a wonderful musician, perhaps the world's first pop star, really. We're still singing his songs today, right? He also had an eye for beauty with words and prayers. He wrote at least half of the psalms that are in our Psalter. We still pray them today. He had an eye for beauty. David was also kind to those who were not kind to him. The previous king, King Saul, wanted David dead. And he chased him all over the land to try to make him dead. And yet David was nice to Saul. He spared his life twice. And even there's a story, if you remember Mephibosheth, a little obscure story. Uh, Saul's grandson, who had crippled feet, King David, after Saul was dead, invited Mephibosheth to his king's table, and he ate there his whole life long. He was very, very kind, even to Saul's great-great-grandson. David also was one who praised God greatly, and in a wonderful way. In fact, he sang God's praises so much that he embarrassed his wife. You remember that story? She wanted to die because he was so embarrassing. 
the way he danced before God when they brought the ark into the city of Jerusalem. David was passionate in that particular way. And we know a lot more about David, don't we? David is actually one who broke many of the Ten Commandments, not least including murder, deceit, adultery with Bathsheba, the killing of her husband Uriah. Another story that's perhaps less known is that David, to acquire his first wife, Michael, uh, the, the bride price put in place by Saul, who wanted David dead, the bride price was 100 Philistines' foreskins. Ooh. It was supposed to be a suicide mission. He didn't think he'd make it. David delivered double. <laughs> yeah. David had an eye for beauty. He also then sometimes turned a blind eye to the dark things in his own family. His kids did atrocious things to each other, including things like rape and murder. And David himself would describe himself likely as a bit of a failed father. His story ends, 1 Kings chapter 2, with him giving a kind of hit list to his son Solomon, the kind that some think that might have been the backdrop to mafia movies like The Godfather. David was not all good. He had plenty of shady stuff going on in his life. And collectively, I think you can begin to see our and pairing for the day. David was both saint and sinner. He did some really great things, and he did some really, really terrible things. And it sound familiar? It should, because it's real life. Maybe we aren't quite as extravagant as he was, but it's true of us too. And when we view ourselves or others along the lines of a false dichotomy that says we are either good or bad, we're missing it. The whole story for David and for each and every one of us is that no one is all good and no one is all bad. The glorious and offensive claim of the Bible is that the line between good and evil does not run between us and them, between me and you, between this nation and that one. The line between good and evil runs right down the center of me. And David is case in point of this deep truth. So check out this guy with cool hair. Right? Come on, don't judge a book by its cover. That's G.K. Chesterton, and he said this really wonderful thing. He said, there are two despicable modern doctrines. One, that geniuses should be worshipped as idols. And the other, that criminals should be wiped out like germs. That both clever people and bad people should be treated like people does not occur to them. Friends, David was a person just like you and me. He had an eye for beauty, and it took him to high highs in his life with God. It also took him to low lows in other arenas of life. His story collectively teaches that energy follows attention. For good and for ill, it's really similar to what Jesus later said when he said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Which brings us to the last way of seeing in our text today. It's God's way of seeing, and God is presented as the one who sees the unseen. So I invite you to look again at a few more images for fun. Can you see the unseen? Where's the giraffe? Do you see it? All right, where is it, Paul? There it is. Come on. This next one's harder. Can you find the, gira- uh, the fox? This one's frustrating. Sorry. All right, where is it? There it is. It's not a real fox. Ugh. Okay. Please forgive my kind of cheesy way of getting at the main point of this text, but the main point is that God sees the unseen, or even more so, as the scriptures say, and especially about us humans, God does not look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And let me tell you why this gets to be, for me, really tricky and really exciting and really practical. Israel had these first two kings. King Saul is known as the bad king. But he really wasn't that bad. His sins were comparatively small, even when compared to David. And yet he's rejected by God. He was drifting away from God. King David is known to be the good king. And yet he did some flagrantly bad things. He ends up being Israel's favorite king. And even more so, get this, David is the only person in the Bible who is described as a man after God's own heart. How does that settle after we've just shared what we know about David? He is the only one, it's said in the Old Testament and in the New, that David is a man after God's own heart. What gives? I'll tell you, God saw David's heart. And David sought God wholeheartedly in all things. In the good times, in the high times, David gave credit to God and gave thanks. And so he would say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. That's Psalm 103. David wrote that. And when we say the same, we're using his words. In the low times, when David sinned, he wept. And he said, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Against you and you only have I sinned. That's Psalm 51. David wrote that. And the faithful ever since have known how to confess their sins. When the world is truly crooked, when things are not at all the way they should be, it's David who taught us to pray, let God arise. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Psalm 68. When we're lost or when we're lacking, it's David who taught us to say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Psalm 23. And when we look out at this beautiful world that some view with despair and others seek to control, it was David who taught us to say that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who dwell in it. That's Psalm 24. And so even that devil's pyramid from Chris's video is God's. Friends, the whole story of David tells us that we are never more alive than when we are dealing with God. In fact, you might even say that we are hardly alive at all until we are dealing with God. David was great 
He was a man after God's own heart, not because he was morally perfect. He wasn't. We know it. David was great because in all the ups and downs of life, from start to finish, he was one who dealt with God. Now, I need to correct something that I said earlier. Earlier, I said that David is for us a perfect example of us as both saints and sinners. More honestly, that and pairing really only comes our way through David's great, 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 great grandson, Jesus. You can put that up there, the, the loop, Paul. And I want you to notice that Jesus is the one who is only truly sinless. Jesus is the one who is only truly saintly. And yet God, who sees our hearts and knows our need, God offers Jesus in a way that comes to us like this beautiful weave. It becomes for us a kind of blessed exchange that the New Testament describes in this way. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, speaking of Jesus, says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a blessed exchange. Here we see God reciprocating the heart of David for us. It's not about any kind of moral perfection. It's about relationship at all costs. That was the way of David. That's the way of Jesus. And if David were to know that this would be so for us because of his great, 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 great grandson, Jesus, you know what he would have done? He would have sung. He would have danced. He would have embarrassed the snot out of his wife, giving praise to God because of this good, good thing. And we're going to do the same. So I invite you to stand together and we are going to sing joyfully to God the words of another psalm. Let's do it together.
saints and sinners, because the heart of God, like the heart of David, is relationship at all costs. And so as we go from this place into all the ups and downs of life, may the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you always. Amen. Go in peace.